2: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Olivia Enos. I cover the human rights portfolio in the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm really excited to host this program. Um, for those who don't know me, uh, North Korean human rights issues are actually the reason why I got into working on Asia in the first place. So I'm really excited to host this event, especially with all of these fantastic panelists that we have here today. Um, Earlier this year, I had the opportunity to travel to Singapore during the Trump-Kim summit. And I was there to do media for Heritage, specifically because um, Heritage really wanted to highlight off the agenda in Singapore. And my thought was... If the Trump administration is willing to call for complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear program, why not call for complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement? of North Korea's political prison camps as well. That was my central contention, at least. And obviously, the Singapore summit came and went. And human rights issues played little to no role in the negotiation process. Um, Pompeo claims that issues of religious freedom were raised. Those are critical issues. But other than that, we really have not heard anything that was raised during those discussions. This was really a missed opportunity on the Trump administration's part. Because prior to the Singapore summit, you had, of course, a lot of issues raised surrounding Otto Warmbier's death and concerns expressed about human rights abuses then. And, of course, everyone remembers the State of the Union address when Ji Song ho uh, stood up and was highlighted for the severe human rights abuses that North Korea is continuing to carry out even today. And you even had the remarkable meeting of the president with several North Korean refugees, all incredibly important symbolic uh, commitments to advancing human rights issues. And then, of course, Congress earlier this year reauthorized the North Korean Human Rights Act, which was very momentous and and definitely needed. But since the Singapore summit, it seems like human rights issues have been completely slipped off the negotiating table. They're, They're not even on the table. And with the second Trump-Kim summit potentially on the horizon, I wanted to highlight five key reasons why I believe human rights issues and, in particular, the political prison camp issues – should be raised at the upcoming summit or even in negotiations that are happening behind closed doors. I outline this in the paper that some of you may have picked up when you came in. Um, But the first contention is that the Kim regime uses human rights abuses in the first place to maintain its grip on power. I mean, it's the very threat of having three generations of your family sent to a political prison camp or the potential to be brutally executed in the Times Square for mere possession of a Bible, watching a South Korean drama or having dust on the portrait of one of the dear leaders, I think that the ability to maintain the grip on power is the reason why Kim Jong-un continues to have the human rights abuses and to carry them out in the way that he does. And beyond that, if he didn't, maybe the North Korean people would have an opportunity at actually speaking out against their government and speaking out against the practices that are so egregious. Second, I believe that raising concerns about human rights issues actually contradicts Kim Jong-un's propaganda about the United States. Kim Jong-un repeatedly tells his people that the U.S. is only interested in going to war and serves primarily as an aggressor toward North Korea. But raising human rights issues, and not just raising them, but using information efforts to get those messages into North Korea has the ability to contradict that propaganda in a way that I think we can't even measure how potentially beneficial that could be. The third reason is that North Korea actually profits from its human rights abuses. Uh, We see in 2012 alone, North Korea spent $300 million on its luxury facilities, $644 million on luxury goods, and an estimated $1.3 billion on its missile program. And in that same year... North Korea requested only $111 million from the World Food Program. Now, if North Korea is able to spend that much on luxury goods, that much on its missile program and its weapons development, then it's able to actually feed its people and is, in fact, profiting off of those human rights abuses. Fourth, North Korea profits uniquely from the prison camps. Why do I say this? Because forced labor in prison camps is free labor for the regime. And beyond that, forced labor in the prison camps may be used expressly for the purpose of developing its various chemical, biological, and nuclear and missile programs. There have been several reports over the years that have pointed to that. And while reports are limited, stories have long emerged that that the regime may be testing its chemical and biological weapons on prisoners among other populations, including disabled children. This is egregious in and of itself, but it's actually helping the regime to continue its its, uh, its weapons development. Number five, Kim Jong-un may be persuaded that it is actually in his interest to eliminate the prison camps, in order to gain legitimacy in the international space. Arguably, the very reason why North Korea developed its nuclear and missile programs is for its own legitimacy and to maintain its regime stability. That's why it's so important that US negotiators clearly communicate that no leader who imprisons his own people in brutal concentration-like camps can be viewed as stable or legitimate. We have to communicate that prior to a second Trump-Kim summit, and we need to communicate that in ongoing closed-door negotiations. The administration's decision to leave human rights largely off the table in Singapore was arguably a victory for Kim Jong-un because it meant that North Korea was able to set the terms for negotiations, something that North Korea shouldn't be doing, whether it's on the nuclear front or on the human rights front. While the ultimate ask should be for complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's political prison camps, incremental initial steps could be taken that might be necessary as a precursor. And as I argued in my paper, requesting humanitarian access for actors like the World (coughs) Food Program or the International Committee for the Red Cross could be potentially a good first step. Or another first step could be to call for the release of all women and children inside North Korea who pose absolutely no security threat to the regime. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of visiting the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which is, if you haven't visited it, I think it's a its a staple in Washington. And uh, their exhibit that I got to visit this last time was on Americans and the role that they played during the Holocaust it it's a mixed bag which is you know sort of a, a shaming moment for Americans to to watch what the response was like during the holocaust and this particular uh, museum uh, exhibit highlighted US responses to reports of kristallnacht and also reports of the concentration camps there One of the most amazing things was the number of uh, newspaper reports that had been written and the number of individuals who did speak out and even the importance of a single government official, Henry Morgenthau, who was the lone Jewish member of the cabinet during the Holocaust, he spoke out and he convinced FDR to actually start the War Refugee Board, which is the reason why so many individual Jews from, who would have suffered during the Holocaust were able to find refuge and freedom here in the United States. It's powerful because it's a reminder that individual citizens and their actions matter, and how governments re- respond to atrocities is incredibly meaningful. The UN Commission of Inquiry report that was released in 2014 found that human rights abuses in North Korea are without parallel in the contemporary world. There are between 80,000 to 120,000 individuals in political prison camps today, and I would say that's probably a conservative estimate. And beyond that, even further conservative estimate, over 400,000 individuals have already perished in these camps In this unique moment in time, when we are in negotiations with North Korea, can we truly afford to not raise human rights concerns? Do we really have the option to not advocate for the rights and the liberties of the North Korean people? I would say we do not. It's now my pleasure to introduce to you our panelists Each one was selected for a very particular reason, Jung because she covers both national security issues and human rights issues, which I think is rare in Washington. Um, Dan, because he and a fellow staffer, Michelle Cho, wrote a fabulous paper, which I I hope you were able to grab on your way in, for the National Bureau for Asian Research, arguing that the U.S. government should find more natural ways to integrate human rights into negotiations with North Korea. And Greg, because, well, he's Greg, and he doesn't really need any introduction. He's the arguably one of the foremost uh, uh, advocates for human rights in North Korea here in Washington. But I wanted to give a little background on on each of them. Jung uh, Dr. Pak, is a senior fellow and the South Korea, SK Korea Foundation Chair in Korea Studies at the Brookings Institution Center for East Asia Policy Studies. She focuses on national security challenges facing the United States and East Asia, including North Korea's weapons of mass destruction capabilities, the regime's domestic and foreign policy calculus, internal stability, and inter-Korean ties. Um, Prior to joining Brookings, she's held senior positions at the Central Intelligence Agency in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And prior to her work in national security, Dr. Pak taught at Hunter College in New York City um, and studied in South Korea as a Fulbright Scholar. From 2014 to 2016, Pak served as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer at the National Intelligence Council in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. In that role, she led U.S. Intelligence, uh, intelligence community's production of strategic analysis on the Korean Peninsula and represented the intelligence community in White House policy meetings, provided direct analytic support to the National Security Council, and advised the DNI and his senior staff on key developments and emerging issues. She graduated with an undergraduate degree from Colgate University and her Ph.D. in U.S. history from Columbia. Now, I'd like to introduce Dan Ahm. Dan is a close personal friend of mine, and he is the director of National Bureau uh, for Asian Research Washington, DC office. Um, Dan leads NBR's engagement with US Congress and the media, and he works closely with NBR's research leaders uh, and NBR's executive team to develop and implement nonpartisan outreach strategies that integrate congressional needs and perspectives. Um, Dan previously worked on Capitol Hill, where he managed a portfolio of thematic and regional issues related to foreign policy, international law, and human rights on the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, and previously he served at the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights. Uh, Mr. Om was on a strategic litigation team that brought cases before international and regional bodies. He graduated with a JD from George Washington University, a BA in philosophy from Baylor University, and he's also attending the same Georgetown program. Program that I was in the masters of Asian Studies. Finally, I'll turn to Greg. Greg Scarlato is the executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea in Washington DC. He has coordinated 18 HRNK publications addressing North Korea's human rights situation and the operation of its regime. He's a visiting professor at Hankuk University of Foreign Studies in Seoul as well as an instructor and coordinator of the Korean Peninsula and Japan class at the US State Department's Foreign Service Institute. Skarlatu is Vice President and Executive Board of the International Council on in Korean Studies. And prior to HRNK, Greg worked with the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C. He has a lot of other um, very important things, but I'm going to move on so that we can actually get to our discussion. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Jenny.
3: Thank you. Olivia wrote a, f- a fabulous paper that um, I know is outside, and she gave you a preview of that in her, co- uh, in her talk here. Um, and I'm so grateful for, for Olivia and for Heritage for hosting this uh, event on human rights. Um, I want to tell you about a tale of two presidential speeches. Last year, um, the President Trump gave a speech at the UN General Assembly um, talking about North Korea. This was at the height of tensions with North Korea. This was after the, uh, the ICBM missile test launches and uh, the nuclear test and the war of words between Kim and Trump. In that UN General Assembly speech, um, President Trump talked about everything. That North Korea has done wrong, and uh, has uh, the the things that North Korea has the the international norms that uh, North Korea has violated. He talked about nuclear and ballistic missiles, of course, um, but he also talked about um, the murder of his half brother in Malaysia using chemical and biological weapons. He talked about uh, North Korea's proliferation, past proliferation. Um, he talked about uh, the Japanese abductions, the abductions of the Japanese citizens that North Korea um, conducted in the past. Um, and he also talked about human rights um, and, also, and about the uh, detention and the eventual death of Otto Warmbier. Fast forward a year later at the UN General Assembly speech in 2018, just, just a month ago. President Trump said, missiles and rockets are no longer flying in every direction. Nuclear testing has stopped, and remains of our fallen heroes are being returned to lay at rest in American soil. And then he went on to thank President Moon for facilitating the conversation, the diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, um, and this was in addition to the what I feel are gratuitous compliments to Kim Jong-un for engaging in diplomacy. In that same speech, President Trump with, had announced it or had applauded the the withdrawal of the United States from the Human Rights Council and that the U.S. had withdrawn support for the International Criminal Court as if to footstomp the fact that we were not going to raise the human rights issue with Kim Jong-un or North Korea anymore. It may be true uh, for some countries um, and in some national security priorities to separate human rights issues from the national security issues, the hard issues. Um, and there is a sense in the national security community that somehow human rights, um, can wait. Um, and that it, it is, it's a soft issue that can be taken care of at some later date, at some later time, after the thorny, the thornier issues in North, of, in North Korea's case of its ballistic missiles and its nuclear weapons program um, have been resolved. Human rights can wait. But I would argue that that's not the case in North Korea. In my, from my perspective, human rights violations and North Korea's pursuit of its uh, weapons of mass destruction are two pillars that undergird the existing regime as it is, and its desire to cement its nuclear weapon status. These two pillars are mutually reinforcing. As Olivia and others have pointed out, human rights violations pay for the weapons program in the 100,000 or so overseas laborers, the 100 or so thousand laborers in the camps, um, the corruption of the elite, or as well as the working classes, um, in its proliferation, in its diversion of resources to the nuclear missiles and the elite lifestyles. Human rights violations are embedded in the ideological infrastructure to crush dissent Uh, from the neighborhood watches all the way up to the national level, and you could argue on the international stage in which North Korea uses violence to quiet dissent uh, of defectors uh, and others. I think the killing of his half-brother in Malaysia is a a key example of how the reach of North Korea's uh, violations uh, reach beyond its geographical boundaries. Third, human rights violations are justifications for the nuclear weapons program. Because of the hostile outside world, the regime has for decades has said that it requires absolute loyalty to the Kim family. Remember Kim Jong-un said that the nuclear weapon, that the nuclear button is on his desk in his desk only. As, because of the hostile outside world, because of hostile U.S. policies, hostile, um, sanctions, it's only Kim Jong-un who stands between North Korea's survival, um, and, or, or prospect, or, or uh, destruction. And so the human rights violations are required from the Kim's, from Kim's perspective to ensure, uh, his, uh, supremacy in this monolithic system, as well as to, um, in effect, per, lay the path or, or smooth the path for additional generations of the Kim family. Finally, I would argue that one of the reasons that we, because the human rights and uh, weapons of mass destruction are so integrated into North Korea's way of doing things and its approach, um, that to really believe um, that Kim is sincere and that we should have faith and confidence in his strategic pivot, um, in the way that President Trump and President Moon of South Korea have been trying to argue, um, any effort on on Kim's addressing the human rights violations would have been a really strong signpost that Kim was serious. Um, and w- in the absence of addressing human rights or the, the fact that it's not even on the table on the agenda um, for uh, negotiations and diplomacy with Kim, it would be to... Only look at one pillar of what, what, uh, makes the North Korean regime strong, um, and its defiance of the international community and the norms. Any, uh, Kim's efforts to address any of these issues would have been a signpost that he was, in fact, serious about dismantling the nuclear, its nuclear weapons program. And I'll end there, and I look forward to my colleagues', um, comments as well as to your questions.
4: Olivia, thanks so much for inviting me um, and for this timely discussion. You, have, uh, you and I have discussed this uh, in a number of uh, chats. and um, So I appreciate the opportunity now to uh, to put these into the public sphere and listen to what you have to say. So I'm Dan Om, as Olivia said, with the National Bureau of Asian Research. We're a nonprofit think tank headquartered out in Seattle with a policy shop here in D.C., and we work across the spectrum of issues on political and security issues to trade, economic and uh, energy issues, um, working with scholars both from the U.S. and Asia. And while um, my comments here today are my own and don't reflect those of NBR, they do reflect uh, the belief that human rights are not siloed and actually cut across many of these issues that we're discussing today. So let me just... uh, build off of uh, Olivia's and uh, Jung's excellent remarks. Let me try not to repeat anything, and maybe I'll just, just try to highlight three main buckets of ideas. So the title of today's event is Thinking Strategically About Human Rights and Negotiations with North Korea. So the first question to me is, what do human rights have to do with our current nuclear negotiations? And I would argue three points. So number one, that human rights is a powerful tool of suasion against North Korea. In other words, North Korea is particularly sensitive to and responds to pressure against its human rights record. Um, For many years, uh, folks have argued that, in fact, that's the argument against raising human rights issues. It's too sensitive, and if you raise human rights issues with North Korea, they'll just walk away from the table. But I think history has shown that when the U.S. and the international community are stalwart in raising these issues, North Korea has shown its willingness to deal. And I think the case in point is uh, the example that Olivia raised with uh, the UN Commission of Inquiry report. So the UN Commission of Inquiry, of course, was created by the UN Human Rights Council, uh, charged to identify whether or not crimes against humanity were being committed inside North Korea. Uh, and they found that they had. Now, when this had happened, the UN General Assembly then took these recommendations, and then uh, they filed to the UN Security Council in order to vote for the recommendation of Kim jong at the time, uh, to the International Criminal Court. Uh, So from that mounted international pressure, we saw a couple of firsts. So for the first time, North Korea sent their foreign minister, uh, for the first time I think in 15 years, North Korea sent their foreign minister to the UN General Assembly to plead against this indictment. Two, for the first time ever, North Korea opened its doors, or at least invited the UN Special Rapporteur on North Korean Human Rights to come visit. Um, Third, for the first time ever, North Korea actually accepted some of the recommendations to its human rights record under the Universal Periodic Review, which is essentially a process where all UN uh, members come and have their human rights um, vetted and uh, commented on, and they accepted some uh, recommendations, though implementation still remains a question. All this to say, contrary to the views in the past, when the United States and the international community stand together on these issues and show that it's important and they're willing to put some teeth behind this, uh, North Korea has shown that it's willing to work on this. Now, s- opening its doors to a, f- uh, a special rapporteur, um, sending a foreign minister, accepting some recommendations on paper, those aren't, those aren't game changing. That said, for North Korea, those are giant leaps. Those, those are things that we've never seen before. And if we're able to maintain that level of pressure and focus, uh, we could see what the next steps might be. Point number two, uh, human rights is also an indicator of good will in negotiations. Now the example I'll pull here uh, are the re- three Americans that were released prior to Trump and Kim meeting at the Singapore summit. Now prior to their release, the White House had signaled that releasing these three Americans would be a sign of goodwill towards the negotiations. Um, and these Americans, of course, um, were detained uh, or were charged and detained on spurious charges, uh, things that wouldn't pass muster under international human rights law. Uh, and then they were um, walked through uh, essentially a show trial uh, and, and detained. Now, um, when North Korea did release them, in fact, it gave political capital to President Trump to then announced that this was indeed a domestic victory and helped aid in the process of making the argument that I should, in fact, meet with, meet with Kim. Um, the other example from the summit is the uh, release of the remains of prisoners of war, uh, prisoners of war. And again, that may not be seen as a traditional human rights issue, but under international humanitarian aid law, family members have a right to access the remains of their family members. Um, so again, President Trump raised this uh, in person. It was reported with Kim directly directly. Um, he said that this was something that you know people have been pressuring me on, and so I want to raise it to you. And Kim apparently accepted immediately. Now, again, this doesn't change the structural human rights situation inside North Korea, but it's evidence that North Korea, when it sees that there's at least low costs, and it's something that the U.S. wants, that it's willing to trade some human rights uh, bargaining chips uh, as a measure of goodwill. Then finally, uh, the last one is... So human rights, or advancing human rights, can contribute to our own national security interests. And I'll just raise two examples. Um, so one is uh, the the labor camp issue that both Olivia and Chung raised. Uh, that the money that you that they gain here is an important source of foreign currency uh, that they gain overseas, uh, and likely could contribute to the nuclear weapons program. Now I'll just throw a number out there. If you can hang with me, uh, I'll show why it's relevant. Um, but if you take a look at the numbers between how much money. Uh, North Korean labor camps raise uh, compared to uh, how much uh, money it's reported that the North Korea nuclear program is – I'm missing it right now. Oh, here it is. Um, so according to a 2015 UN report, it was estimated that 50,000 North Koreans are working overseas, and it earns Pyongyang apparently $1.2 billion to $2.3 billion a year. Now compare that figure, 1.2 billion, to 2.3 billion. Two figures that estimate that, uh, based on a South Korean government's analysis of North Korea's nuclear programming, that spending stands between 1.1 billion to 3.2 billion overall. Uh, now, I'm not a great mathematician, but if I at least take that Venn diagram and overlay them against each other, I see a lot of overlap. It's it's um, so one of the. Um, uh, one of the positions that the Trump administration could take is that if you scale down or, or eliminate these labor camps uh, and take meaningful steps on denuclearization, we will open up trade and aid and sanctions to make up for that deficit. That could be one way of linking the human rights and uh, security negotiations together. So one other example, refugees. Now, um, North Korean refugees uh, cross from the North Korean uh, sino Border, um, they usually cross into a third-party country before. If they, um, if they're lucky, they make it to a safe haven in South Korea, the U.S., sometimes the U.K., um, and elsewhere as well. Now, this is primarily seen as a human rights issue because refugees are protected under refugee law, um, that they should be allowed safe traverse without being interrupted. Um, but it's also in our national security interest for this to happen. North Korea is a uh, isolated, closed-off place where it's hard to get information. Um, these North Korean refugees uh, have on-the-facts experience, um, and oftentimes when they come through, they're debriefed by uh, national intelligence uh, uh, services both in South Korea and the U.S. Um, the higher up you go when you've got uh, someone like a Taeyong-ho or uh, a Hwang jang um you've got poor people who are closer in access to the decision-making spheres, uh, you've got better intel. So saving North Korean refugees isn't just good for human rights and normative issue. It also can benefit our national security interests. Now – A couple things that I didn't mention, you may notice, um, are related to the most egregious of violations uh, in in North Korea. Those related to uh, the massive political prison camps, those related to arbitrary executions, uh, detentions, uh, firing squads, um, and North Korea's use of their uh, resources that don't benefit the overall good. I I would posit that both denuclearization and closing the prison camps won't happen overnight. That said... It's important to put the issue at least on the agenda, to leave a little daylight there and make incremental steps that can both improve human rights in a small way uh, and serve our national security interests. So I'll stop there.
1: Well, we, uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Delighted to be here with
4: friends. Um,
1: I would like to um, also say that uh, the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea is represented by Colonel David Maxwell, one of our board members here in the audience today, um, I should begin by saying that I'm not here to bash, to criticize President Moon in relationship to his um, approach to North Korean human rights policy. We all understand that there are good reasons why he won a landslide in the elections last year. There are negative side effects of the Han River miracle that South Korea is still dealing with, and his election had to do with that very much. President Moon's approach to North Korea, of course, as we all understand, has to do with this drive to make progress as quickly as possible. And in this process, it seems that human rights has been left behind. Um, Hope is not lost. Uh, I do hope that President Moon's advisors understand that it is not too late to integrate human rights concerns in South Korea's approach and rapprochement with North Korea. That said, there are two aspects I would like to address today. Um, Over the past years, especially since the February 2014 uh, UNCOI report, and of course prior to that as well, there has been action by advocacy groups and action at the UN driven but what I I would describe as an informal coalition of like-minded states. The United States, the European Union, the Republic of Korea, Japan, and others, Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth. The two are mutually reinforcing, and we would not have a North Korean human rights movement if it weren't for North Korean escapees who have been leaving the country, especially since the days of the Great Famine, the days of the Konan Hengun. There are currently 31,000 of them in South Korea. Wherever they might be, in South Korea, in the United States, in Canada, in Germany, in the UK, they need protection. They need assistance, and their voices must be heard. Their voices must not be muffled. We speak with a lot of human rights activists, especially in South Korea, and they are indeed expressing very serious concerns. Um, Their funding has been drastically reduced. um, As Many of you know the culture of charity in South Korea is very different from the United States. It is very difficult for NGOs, especially for human rights NGOs, and even more so for North Korean human rights NGOs, to depend um, on individual donations, on corporate donations. It is unavoidable. They have to depend on government funding. That government funding has been drastically reduced. Um pursuant to the North Korean Human Rights Act finally passed in South Korea after more than 10 years, a North Korean human rights foundation was established. That foundation has been de facto dismantled. Um, Our friends, um, activists in South Korea, many of them um, North Korean escapees, are telling us that, um, regrettably, South Korean law, law enforcement censors the content they send Into North Korea. Of course, there are no more balloon launches. And by the way, pursuant to the military to military agreement, given the existence of that no-fly zone, there will be no more balloons, no more drones. So one of the few vehicles left is plastic bottles that, that are filled with rice. A USB is inserted into those bottles and they're thrown into the sea, the West Sea. The current takes them up north, Well, uh, there have been instances verified by our friends when South Korean cops showed up, um, asked to see the USBs, checked the content, uh, content critical of Kim Jong-un, not okay. Uh, anything about the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, not okay. Of course, K-pop, K-drama, religious content, still okay. Um, our North Korean escapee friends just a couple of weeks ago, um, Dave, uh, Colonel Maxwell, uh, Roberta, and I spoke uh, together with uh, Chi Song-ho, whom you mentioned, uh, the, the North Korean escapee who appeared at the State of the Union Address, and uh, Kang Tol-hwan, none other than the, the hero of the aquariums of Pyongyang. And both of them were complaining that there are no more public appearances. They're no longer invited to speak in South Korea. So indeed, uh, in that regard, there are serious concerns And again, um, what it takes is to protect, support, and give a voice to these escapees. Now, certainly there is another aspect, and that is UN action. Um, In that regard, I mentioned that informal coalition of like-minded states. We have seen UN General Assembly resolutions on North Korean human rights for 14 years now. In particular, since the February 2014 UNCOI reports, every year, every spring, we have seen strong UN Human Rights Council resolutions, and in the fall, in the third committee of the General Assembly, we have seen strong human rights resolutions, DPRK human rights resolutions, all of these, including paragraphs, most importantly, on number one Crimes against humanity, number two, accountability. Of course, in previous resolutions, the ICC was mentioned. Even if the ICC is not mentioned, it is extraordinarily important that these two topics, these two issues, crimes against humanity and accountability, be included in any new resolution. Anything short of that would be a calamity for the North Korean human rights movement. Moreover, Since December 2014, uh, North Korean human rights has been uh, placed on the agenda of the UN Security Council. As we all recall, it takes 9 out of 15 votes of permanent and non-permanent members to place an item on the agenda of the Council. That has happened every year, every December since 2014. It will be very important to see, once again, North Korean human rights included Placed on the agenda of the Security Council uh, this year as well in 2018. Um, Two of my colleagues who are in the audience uh, today were with me in uh, New York City last week. We had a conference on the 24th, a very successful conference uh, meant to celebrate the the upcoming 70th anniversary ...of the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that's December the 10th, and against the background of the celebration, we also addressed human rights. We had uh, two witnesses, one of them a former political prisoner from uh, Yodok, Camp Number 15 in North Korea, the other one a former worker officially dispatched overseas... I cannot talk too much about it. I'll probably have to consult with the board and legal counsel before we come up with more details, but we were under extraordinary pressure, never seen before, prior to a human rights event. The event was canceled, and then we had to bring it back from the dead. Uh, There was pressure on multiple levels, Um, so it is not only the North Korean human rights movement that's under pressure one sees that even events at the UN are faced with increasing pressure um, of a magnitude that, quite frankly, we we hadn't seen before. Of course, uh, it is it is not – well, it could be encouraging when one hears the the South Korean foreign minister, Foreign Minister Kang Kyung-ha, say that uh, North Korean human rights is a global issue. Well, this could mean two things – Number one, we're not going to address North Korean human rights in bilateral (coughs) negotiations. Number two, uh, we will address North Korean human rights within the multilateral (coughs) context at the UN. And I do hope that, uh, that the second point remains valid in the coming weeks and months, especially in the coming weeks. It will be very difficult for significant action at the UN um, to happen without the active involvement of all of those key actors that I have mentioned, even if only one of them leaves, decides not to participate actively in this efforts at the UN um it, it will become extraordinarily difficult to press ahead with action addressing North Korean human rights. Um, I would like to reinforce the point that uh, Dan and Chung and um, Olivia made. The DPRK regime does care about North Korean human rights. Um, as a matter of fact, last week, uh, the DPRK permanent mission to the United Nations issued statements uh, harshly criticizing the government of Japan and the government of Australia for their support of a um, General Assembly resolution addressing North Korean human rights. Again, I'm in full agreement with my colleagues that North Korean human rights can be integrated in the inter-Korean peace and reconciliation process, North Korean human rights can also be integrated within uh, the denuclearization talks. And there have been precedents of multilateral and bilateral negotiations with the Soviet Union during the days of the Cold War when uh, human rights was part of the process, whether this was Helsinki process or whether this was President Reagan and uh, Secretary of State Schultz Uh, caring so much about the the refuse issue in the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union's um, uh, getting serious about this particular issue was indeed interpreted as um, indication that there was credibility on the other front as well, on the the nuclear front. So again, uh, despite harsh, relatively harsh circumstances, I will continue to be cautiously optimistic and hope That um, the government of South Korea, President Moon's advisors, will understand the importance of integrating human rights in their approach to North Korea. There can be no economic development in the future. There can be no real rapprochement between the peoples of the two Koreas without paying attention to the North Korean human rights issue. Well, thank you for listening. Look forward to the Q&A.
2: Well, thank you guys for all of your incredibly insightful uh, remarks. As the moderator, I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and then I'll open it up to the audience. one of the reasons why I coordinated the program was really because I did want to draw this linkage between the national security issues and the human rights issues. And hopefully you did get that, I think, throughout everyone's remarks really consistently. Um, but I think one of the frustrating things looking at U.S. government efforts is just the way that the State Department itself is, is even set up, it, it unnaturally divides some of the human rights issues from those security issues. And I think you see this in so many ways. And some of it is just a reflection of the reality that, as humans, we can only master so much information at once, and and it's hard to sort of get all of that together. But I think it's going to be really important in the months ahead that we do integrate those issues together in, in future negotiations with North Korea. So that's my first question is, is... In the next couple of months, obviously um, you have opportunities at the UN to raise these issues. What would you say are some key milestones that you would look for in integrating the human rights and national security issues together, especially in negotiations with North Korea?
3: Key milestones? Um, You know, I... I think Secretary of State Pompeo said that when he met with Kim Jong-un that he raised the issue of the Japanese abductions. Um, But who knows how that was raised. It could have been just tacked on at the end as just a, I have to say it, so I'm going to say it. Um, But I think um, the narrative now is of progress, uh, where North Korea is making progress on on um, the Singapore summit and the the various agreements with South Korea. Um, And I think uh, the trajectory right now is still of a notion that there's progress on those issues, but with um, human rights and other issues being um, sidelined. So I think um, on milepost, I don't know, I'm not sure that we're going to see Issues like this, I think the if anything, Japan still you know is raising the human rights issue as Greg has pointed out, as has Australia, um, and I think um, that's where uh, the pressure still has to be coming from the outside on those things. Um, I, I would also um, highlight the fact that maximum pressure, which um, included sectoral sanctions on things like coal and fishery, fisheries and textiles. Which seem pretty benign on the surface, but they but they require uh, forced labor, um, labor from the prison camps, um, and and those things are those are fungible um, profits that can be diverted and have been diverted to um, regime priorities on the nuclear weapons program, um, and we'll see how much of that maximum pressure on those sectoral sanctions and, and implementing those sanctions are going to be. Um, be, uh, implemented and strengthened over, over the next few months. Um, so I would look at those couple of things, uh, what Greg has mentioned about how, how the like-minded, um, countries, um, and groups are talking about human rights. Um, and secondly, how we, uh, continue to implement, well, what, what remains of maximum pressure.
4: Let me throw three more ideas out there. Um, Building off that. So, uh, one would be uh, speaking of the State Department, nominating and confirming a special envoy for human rights on North Korea. That position has been vacant uh, for the past two years now. Um, There is a question about whether it's better to have an individual specializing in North Korea human rights as opposed to enveloping that into the broader uh, North Korea special representatives portfolio as a better way to integrate those two. While that question remains, it's better to have an envoy on human rights than nothing at all at this point. Number two is, I think Greg had mentioned, um, he could expand on this if he wishes, uh, look out for the UN General Assembly uh, resolutions; see whether they do include uh, human rights as a baseline, but also criminal accountability, uh, crimes against humanity. And then third, uh, building off uh, what Chung said about the uh, potential discussion on Japanese abductees, um, Prime Minister Abe has reached out um, for a summit with uh, Kim Jong-un, see if that comes up during that negotiation. Well, one, see if the summit happens. Two, uh, see how far Prime Minister Abe gets on those discussions. Um, And then the other part is uh, President Trump, of course, has signaled that he's uh, open to a second summit with Kim. Um, I think it would be very important there to see whether or not human rights makes it on that agenda.
1: Great. And again,
4: of course, a... U.N.
1: General Assembly resolution in third committee, including paragraphs on crimes against humanity and accountability, the issue of North Korean human rights being placed on the agenda of the Security Council, then, indeed, the appointment of a special envoy for uh, North Korean human rights. It is very difficult for the current special envoy, for Steve Began, to cover those duties as well. Uh, He might be in a very difficult position, plus there are times when somebody really needs to deal with this issue full-time. And one example is that of the, the papal visit that you discuss in your paper, Olivia, and you raise a lot of great points there. Well, this is an opportunity to approach the Vatican, to raise human rights concerns, to play a role in, well, if it does happen indeed, and by the way, I, I think that good things have come out of papal visits over the years, but indeed there are many caveats that Olivia raises in her paper, this would be a, a particular opportunity for a special envoy to engage and basically um, participate in, in relevant um, North Korea human rights policy. Uh, there is another issue that I would like to raise, and that is the issue of the, the human rights upfront approach. Um, last week, uh, human rights groups, We're having a meeting at the State Department while the Special Envoy was meeting with humanitarian organizations. Um, They have serious concerns pertaining to their funding, and we understand that. I would like to see human rights groups and humanitarian agencies coming a little bit closer together, um, and perhaps – humanitarian agencies, and especially UN agencies involved on the ground in North Korea. And I know they're under tremendous pressure. Again, it comes down to funding. They're doing great work. Um, but the application of the human rights upfront approach will be very important. Um, to put it very, sim- very b- simply, um, it is an untenable position to be running a water and sanitation project next to a political prison camp many of the humanitarian operations have taken place in the immediate vicinity of detention facilities and even unlawful detention facilities in the DPRK. Um, If the World Health Organization has a program um, titled um, Health in Prisons, why not seek access to some of North Korea's detention facilities? Why not try to apply this type of program to North Korea's detention facilities as well? In order to do that, we need experts uh, who have the time to basically address this full time. Um, these are all very important issues. And uh, the coming weeks in particular, between now and, and the end of the year, the coming weeks will be absolutely critical for the fate of the North Korean human rights movement and for the fate of action at the UN as
2: well. Excellent. Well, now I'd like to open it up to the audience. If you could please um, identify yourself and your affiliation, and please make sure it's a question. That would be great. Um, let's start with the gentleman in the back.
0: Hello. Uh, thank you so much. This is such a nuanced and interesting uh, issue politically, and I, I understand the sensitivities. Greg, my question, I think, is is uh, probably for you and I guess, can you clarify? Is it your argument that the Moon administration actually has a policy of trying to silence the defectors at the moment? And if the answer to that is yes, (laughs) is it because of a concern that their voices will stir up political opposition inside South Korea to push, you know, to his overall push for reconciliation? Or is it more of a concern uh, that not silencing these people will upset uh, Kim Jong un and make him less willing to keep uh, talking?
1: I wouldn't go as far as stating that the Moon administration has a policy to to suppress North Korean activists and North Korean human rights groups. Um, What we see in South Korea is that when conservative administrations are in power, humanitarian assistance groups are under more pressure. When progressive administrations are in power, human rights groups are under more pressure. Well, there seems to be more pressure now than we saw under previous progressive administrations. To give you an example, the most senior defector ever, Hwang jang yop established a defector organization in the late 1990s. That organization was quietly funded by the South Korean government. Even under the administrations of Progressive Presidents Kim Dae-jung and Noh moo hyun their funding was cut effective January the 1st of this year. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as uh, to say that this is a, a highly targeted policy of suppression, but certainly this is part of an effort to appease uh, Kim Jong-un and the Kim regime. We have seen reports, for example, of um, the Ministry of Unification uh, banning a uh, North Korean defector reporter from participating in an event uh, involving North Korean officials, of course, the the Minister of Unification of South Korea had to apologize for this uh, mishap. So perhaps people get overzealous in the process. There is this overwhelming mood that seems to to favor. Somehow appeasement of the North Korean regime, and this is pretty much the result of that. But certainly the, the end result is that these groups and individuals do not seem to enjoy the, the support that they had enjoyed under previous administrations, not only conservative administrations, progressive administrations as well.
0: My name is uh, Peter Humphrey. I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I note that uh, uranium mining is still going on. You'd think that's the first thing that would be stopped. And uh, it is also possible to use infrared uh, to see which factories are still going on. Um, Thus, I think we're being sold a bill of goods here, an immense bill of goods. I'd like to hear everyone, including you guys, talk a little bit more about what our Plan B is. When you add up the number of people who have died in the prison camps under the Kim regime, you get about a million people, according to Victor Cha. That's um, five or six atomic bombs worth of human bodies. Why hasn't anybody pointed that out to the last administration or this administration? Why do we not make it very clear that the most deadly weapon of mass destruction in North Korea is the prison camps, and that if we could get a ban on the prison camps rather than nuclear weapons, that would be a very good deal because the nuclear weapons cannot (coughs) be used. What is going on?
3: Um, You know, I. I think that just because they're not testing, I mean, the, the progress has been measured by the fact that there hasn't been any ballistic missile testing or nuclear tests in the past year. Um, but I think that if, if the, from 1998 to 2006 is any, any guide when there was no nuclear testing or ballistic, ballistic missile launches, that was when they used that quiet time to covertly develop advanced capabilities. Um, and so, um, you know, I, what, what's, um, I think that when you're, when you're measuring, um, North Koreans, Capabilities and intentions. You have to um, think about why they're um, with why they've stopped testing, and that's I think for diplomatic and political purposes. Um, but that uh, reporting has suggested that they continue to do all of these, um, that continue to advance even you know without sh- displaying their missiles at their parades or or doing additional testing. Um, on the on why we haven't been talking about yeah we haven't been talking about this, but I think human rights is integrated in. A, in in a way, um, into u s approach to north korea, but it's but depending on the year, depending on the season, it waxes and wanes, um, and that uh, and the sequence of when to bring up human rights also is you know is something that 's negotiable um, and flexible um, but i think um, I think the mood of diplomacy um, and and the fear of of offending Kim and and smashing the you know this this very fragile mood of engagement, I think is, um, I think it's misguided. Um, Kim Jong Un is not a bubble boy who is going to die if we talk about human rights or raise those issues. Um, and I think when we, I think it's a specious argument to say that we have to continue to talk about engagement and continue with diplomacy. Yes, of course we should. Um, but the, the same people who advocate not talking about human rights, um, and really pressing Kim are also talking about, um, uh, about testing, about testing Kim. And, w- and when you're testing somebody, you want to make sure that it's a real test and that you're not giving, uh, and that you're not grading on a curve. Um, and so I think human rights should be part of this, this, this discussion because to be really able to test somebody's intentions, their good intentions, then you're going to have to make it a little more difficult than um, showing up to the Olympics and um, rolling out the red carpet for, for, um, for minor concessions that we don't really question.
5: Morning, Dave Maxwell, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and great presentations from everyone. Yeah, two takeaways. I mean, talking points that I think all four have emphasized. You know, human rights is a national security issue. I think we should all emphasize that, and you can't have maximum pressure if you don't include human rights. And I think we should all take that away. <laughs> I'd like to look a little farther in the future and and um, and ask. Uh, I know Olivia has worked on this, uh, and, and maybe the others have. Uh, you know. Th- South Korea not focusing on human rights and i 'd and like to say we can 't want human rights more than south korea uh, that 's kind of a flippant remark, but uh, you know we do have a responsibility as well. But when you look towards unification, if you can speculate you know, that if south korea doesn 't focus on unification or on uh, human rights, when unification occurs, what do you think the impact will be on the Korean people living in the north if no one has Uh, has really tried to protect their human rights. Do you think that will have an impact? And I know that's that's speculation, but I think it's worth, uh, uh, worth thinking about.
2: Yeah, definitely. So for many years now I've been wanting to write a paper that specifically talks about both humanitarian and human rights engagement in especially contingency planning, which is a very sensitive subject both in South Korea and then even here in the U.S. to some extent. And I have been amazed in conversations with various folks that repeatedly I've been told that there isn't any major plan on humanitarian issues and on human rights engagement when it comes to these issues and that really shocks me in large part because I think that there, I mean you already have roughly 30,000 North Korean refugees in South Korea today um, they form a test case at least for how assimilation and the process is going and also a means by which we can have lessons learned um, what works, what doesn't work et cetera. and I think it's so important to be planning for that even in the midst of what seems like increasingly warming relations with with North Korea. I also wanted to pick up on your second point about maximum pressure and um, and its connection to human rights issues, because something that is often overlooked is that in the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, um, they have tied together the sanctions that are specifically issued under those authorities to human rights issues. So if the administration, for example, ever says, well, we can lift all of the sanctions as soon as North Korea is denuclearized. That's actually factually false because in the North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, you're not allowed to lift sanctions on North Korea unless the political prison camps are closed. So it doesn't make sense in negotiations to not have the human rights issues tied together with the nuclear issue when already our, our legislation is sort of pushing us in that direction as is. So that's just one other thing to note. Would anyone else like to take a?
1: Sure. Um, Thinking of the the trailer that uh, the President President Trump showed uh, Kim Jong Un during the the summit meeting, great trailer. I I think I I still believe it was made by the South Koreans. It's very good. They have a trailer for everything in South Korea. They have a trailer for going to the restroom. (laughs) But um, that said, yeah, it was a a very interesting way of presenting this vision of a rapidly developing North Korea. (laughs) That would be impossible without progress on human rights. Um, There is no private property in North Korea. Human rights, labor rights are not observed. In order to join the World Bank, which is a precondition for joining the ADB as well, of course North Korea would have to improve its human rights record Um, It would have to reduce its military expenditure, it would have to collect its national statistical data, Uh, but first and foremost they would have to get very serious about their human rights record. Um, So development devoid of human rights is utterly impossible. The two issues cannot be divorced. Kim Jong-un must understand that, of course, denuclearization is an absolute must. No doubt about that. There's just a, a first very important stepping stone. But eventually, if true development is what North Korea is after, they will need comprehensive economic, social, and political reform. Human rights is a very important part of that.
3: Go ahead. Uh, um, so, on the, Dave, on the unification issue, I mean, I think the question – um, jumping off of what Greg has said is, is in his first comments, um, what kind of what kind of Korea do you want to see? Um, do you want to see a Korea, a unified Korea, where um, policies or groups that are uh, are critical of government policies are silenced? Um, do you want to see a unified Korea where you're so afraid of offending your leader? Um, because he's so sensitive to criticism, um, and so I think when you talk about uh, talk about a unified Korea, you have to talk about what your vision of that Korea is. Um, or, or, or we, are we going to follow the South Korea, uh, this miracle on the Han? That's about economy, but is, it's also about um, the, you know following the candlelight protests. Is this going? You know, it's it's about a, a, an awakening of the political consciousness and the freedoms of people. So I think. Um, I think the course that um, we're on now seems to suggest that Kim is too sensitive, um, and that we can't offend him. Um, and so, I think when you talk about Dave, um, you know, on unification, we have to really think about what that vision is.
4: So, in answer to the unification question, uh, which is a great question, I, I would say probably the best person to speak on that issue um, would be a current. North Korean defector uh, living in South Korea um this is anecdotal perhaps but you know speaking with one of my North Korean friends about this question um I asked her at the time you were in North Korea and this is maybe early 90s um, before she left uh, and this is when they North Korea still believed that South Korea was doing economically worse Um that they were still a you know they were a puppet regime under uh, the US uh, and that the, while the government was corrupt the Korean people themselves were still good and naive um, and that they had this fervor to be unified and they asked her at that point when you knew that South Korea was poorer than you did you want unification and she said yes of course um, we recognize that South Korea is in the worst position, um, but we, re- we realize that there are brothers and sisters, um, and ultimately we need to be one country. So to me, that, there's a stark contrast between how North Koreans, despite how bad they were doing and despite their view of how worse South Korea is doing, still wanted unification compared to the current South Korean context, um, where for a number of reasons they don't want unification because of the economic cost, because of the, um, the cost of restructuring everything. Perhaps the other comparative point I'd raise is um, if this isn't raised well, if this isn't done well, um, we may see in a future unified Korea what the current South Korean political context looks like, which is essentially divided on pretty two extreme lines. Um, and it's ultimately about which side were you on uh, in the 1987 uh, democracy movement? Were you with the conservatives? Um, were you with the ones um, who are, okay, sure, they helped us develop our economy and infrastructure, um, but they also oppressed the democracy movement, and therefore everything you're saying about North Korea is really, in fact, to try to suppress our work? Or are you on the side of you know, democracy and liberalization, and did you fight against the oppressors? Um, And I think if this isn't handled well, if there's not more of a confluence of sharing of views, um, we may see a similar type, if not more extreme, divide in the future.
2: Great. I think I saw somebody back
4: there.
5: Hi, my name's Araya. I'm an intern here at Heritage. Um, I wanted to ask the panel... um, about the bizarre friendship between Dennis Rodman and Kim Jong-un. Does the panel think he actually encouraged Kim Jong-un to want to talk? Because he's also friends with Donald Trump. And is he going to be tapped in negotiations at all?
2: Yeah, I don't think he'll play any role in negotiations. Um, and I think it's unlikely that he was the main leader in getting Kim Jong Un to come to the table. I would give a lot of credit to President Min Jae in for getting North Korea to come to the negotiating table. A lot of that happened around the time of the Olympics. And I would say that was the critical juncture turning point, um, in, in terms of getting negotiations started, and also, frankly, the momentum that has sort of kept negotiations going.
1: I also think that uh, Dennis Rodman, uh, the friendship between the two, had a lot to do with um, Kim Jong-un's comfort level at the time. He hadn't met with the president of Mongolia, who had visited North Korea. He hadn't met with Eric Schmidt, who visited with his daughter. He was uh, chairman of Google at the time. Now, This year, in 2018, the situation has drastically changed, of course, in light of the the multiple summit meetings that have happened this year with our own president, with President Moon, and with with, uh, the Chinese leader, with uh, Xi Jinping. So perhaps a couple of years ago, senior defectors were telling us that There might be an opportunity to see some light between Kim Jong-un and his senior leadership. I think that his comfort level has increased dramatically this year, and I also think that his legitimacy in the eyes of his own senior leadership has also been enhanced. So perhaps Dennis Rodman played a great role as an entertainer at the time, but that's, that's about it. No further role. I agree.
0: John Arnold, Uh, I'd like to go to a little bit more solid sports. Uh, This past Winter Olympics, the South Korean team became a blended team with a couple players coming in from the north, and they were coached by an American coach, Sarah Murray, out of Minnesota. Going forward, uh, there's contemplation between South Korea and North Korea forming a combined bid for an Olympic Games. So... In the big chess match, where does solid sports, the Olympic movement, fit in all this? Especially since it is the Olympic code talks so much about human rights and the sense of fair play.
2: Um, I'll just go really quick. I So earlier this year, um, when... North Korea was allowed to participate in the Olympics. I actually wrote a piece saying why North Korea shouldn't have even been allowed to participate in the Olympics. I think the Olympics, in many ways, were a pretty significant, almost like negotiating gift to North Korea that I think really they did not merit at all for all of the human rights reasons that we've been talking about today, but also because they have their nuclear weapons and their, their missile programs. And even though they haven't been testing as much uh, recently, I, I mean, the fact that they still exist to me means that they probably, as, as a rogue actor, shouldn't have even been allowed to participate in this year's Olympics. I think it would be really unwise for South Korea and North Korea to submit a joint bid. I think, again, it grants undue legitimacy to a regime that does not merit that type of international recognition.
1: Certainly, uh, the optimist might also say that perhaps by throwing in a joint bid, this might create incentives, as difficult as that might be, for the North Korean regime to address those serious human rights issues. Olivia, I'm in full agreement with you. South Korean athletes trained prior to the Olympics at uh, Mashingyong Pass ski resort in North Korea. That ski resort was built with forced labor. North Korean soldiers built it. According to the International Labor Organization, of course, the DPRK is not a member, that is forced labor, children were engaged in public mobilization campaigns, in snow removal and other operations at this ski resort. That has absolutely nothing to do with the Olympic spirit. Actually, that runs counter to the Olympic spirit. Of course, those South Korean athletes were not allowed to wear their South Korean flag shoulder patches, as we recall only one of the members of the South Korean delegation that traveled to Pyongyang for the, the summit meeting uh, wore a South Korean flag lapel pin, and uh, that was none other than the vice chair of the, the Samsung group, Lee jae um, So there were very serious human rights concerns. Human rights was clearly sacrificed for the sake of um, the, the Pyeongchang Olympics. Uh, a lot of compromises were made. Um, one example, uh, Kim Yo-jong Uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, the leader's sister, uh, is on a list of sanctioned individuals, uh, a list uh, issued by our own Department of Treasury and the State Department for a simple reason. She's a uh, senior official of the Propaganda and Agitation Department of PAD, and in that position, she is responsible for punishing those um, seeking to access information from the outside world. North Korean people have been killed, sent to reeducation camps, and to political prison camps. An exemption was granted. I, I, I've never been able to find out. The second time she stepped on South Korean soil, um, w- when she came over to Panmunjom for the summit meeting in April, it's not very clear whether this was a second exemption, whether this was an extension of the first exemption, or whether this is somewhere in a gray zone and the, the, the exemption is, is indefinite. But certainly, if there's talk of a joint Olympic bid, President Moon's advisors must understand that human rights must be part of the equation.
3: Um, so I think uh, the thing about the Olympics and, the, you know, Greg, you talk about the sanctions, exemptions. Um, what value are the sanctions if you can just look aside, look away um, when the Olympics are on um, or when there is a political need? So I think the uh, the Olympics undercut in a lot of ways the sanctions regime. Hmm. Um you know, on in talking about the Olympics, um, guess who's having the next Olympics? It's Tokyo. Um, Tokyo's been a stalwart um, uh, opponent of you know engaging with North Korea without any real concession, with significant concessions from Pyongyang. Um, I would be highly, I'm highly doubtful that Tokyo would roll out the red carpet for um, um, for um, for North Korean advance team remember when um, the head of the band right, um, went to go look at some of the venues in South Korea for their um, performances um, she was the star of the show um, I think Tokyo is unlikely to give that kind of leeway to North Korean advance teams um, or uh, to athletes, um, even if South Korea and North Korea were to have a, a combined um, Olympics team. And I'll also point out that, you know, one of the, I, I would suspect that one of the reasons that Pre- President Moon was so intent on having some rapprochement with North Korea in January was because um, they had a hard time selling tickets. Um... I think that's a, that's a leverage that um, Pyongyang can use against Tokyo. Um, you know, North Korea is not a fan of Prime Minister Abe. It's not a fan of of Japan continuing to you know poke on the abductions issue or continuing on to um, um, expose North Korea ship to ship transfers and violations of the sanctions regime. Um, so. I would fully anticipate North Korea using all of their tools of coercion, including cyber, to cast doubt on the safety of the Tokyo Olympics um, in an effort to um, to use that as leverage against Prime Minister Abe um, and to use that as a way to punish Abe um, and Tokyo if if it came to that um, and so um You know, I think that's something, from my perspective, that's something to watch for in terms of whether North Korea is sincere, but also how much are they, how uh, are um, that Pyongyang can use it to see how much they can test the U.S.-Japan relationship, the Japan-South Korea relationship, and the trilateral um, relationship.
4: Thank you. So, so one. So one thought, it, it is ironic um, because the Olympics represent Western liberal values, a rules-based order, a merit-based system, uh, and to have non-liberal uh, countries um, participate. Uh, there's a stark contrast. I think where, at least in the, this previous Olympics, where it was most stark perhaps is uh, where North Korean um, members were invited to participate in the South Korean team. Uh, of course, the South Korean team had legitimately um uh, made their way to participate, Um But there was you know, di- discussion, and at least for the women's hockey team, uh, they brought North Korean players over into into their team. Uh, and there was a great debate in South Korea about whether this was right, um, whether this makes the team better, whether it's better, it's okay if essentially these players have played all their lives for their chance to uh, win a seat on the Olympic team. Um, and then if you set a set number of seats aside for the other team, whether that's in the spirit of fairness and cooperation. The one other point, would make is, you know, I I think for North Korea, using the Olympics uh, in order to enhance the identity part of the Korean Peninsula was important for them, Um, because once, so despite all the criticism against them, once you get a North and South Korea team coming together on a combined Korean flag, and you see them celebrating and talking to each other and playing together, that drives up enormous fervor within certainly South Korea to imagine what a unified peninsula might look like Um, and you sort of smooth away all the rough edges. um, But every time that happens, then there's less attention on the precarious human rights situation in North Korea and more on just, just the positive aspects of the current sports diplomacy.
0: Um, My name is Terence Matsuo. I'm from the Nelson report. Um, So uh, the panel has kind of discussed the link or uh, discussed the link between the human rights abuses and the regime's legitimacy. So I was just curious as to what the panel kind of thought of, you know, if if the prison camps, et cetera, are so central to the regime's power, you know, why would they make any
5: kind of uh, concessions on it? Thank you.
3: I would ask that same question of the nuclear weapons program. Um, you know uh, and that's why um you know uh i said that the human rights violations and the nuclear weapons programs are two pillars um for the regime um and so to just look at the wmd program without looking at the second pillar that um mut- that reinforces the weapons program i think would be a um would be shooting ourselves in the foot before we even get out of the gate
2: yeah i think that um North Korea needs to be told or there needs to be a more active conversation that there can be a different future for North Korea. And it doesn't have to reside in this area of rogue territory with the political prison camps and with the nuclear weapons program and the missile program. It doesn't have to stay in that space. And I I think, you know, perhaps some of the more optimistic views – I usually don't espouse these, but of the Singapore Summit would be you know when Kim Jong Un did get to walk around in Singapore and he did see what it's like there, and obviously he lived also in in uh you know Europe for certain parts of his life, maybe it would have an appeal um but i think it's I think it's a really difficult question, but I don't think it's one that he really has a right to ask. No responsible actor that's recognized in the international sphere can continue to imprison extrajudicially in death-inducing conditions, individuals in political prison camps. They just can't. And it's the reason I think we continue to have the nuclear negotiations, too. You can't continue to have a, a rogue power that exists in that way. So it's going to take a lot of negotiation, and it's it's the million-dollar question I think everyone's asking. I think saw, did you have your hand up? Oh, yes. Hi, my name is Rachel Paig, and I'm an intern at 38th North. Um, and so I was just wondering, like you guys were talking a little bit about the influence of regional actors. Uh, you mentioned Japan's role that they could play in human rights negotiations, but I noticed that we weren't mentioning what um, anything about China. Um, And I was just wondering what role you think that China could have in human rights negotiations and potentially pushing this agenda, or conversely, um, are they doing, do you think that the talks between um, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un lately have been pushing the human rights negotiations off the table? Do you think, so I was just wondering what the panel's thoughts on that would be.
1: Well, the day China supports uh, efforts to address <laughs> North Korean human rights at the UN will be a wonderful day in my life and in your life and in everybody's <laughs> life.
4: Uh,
1: as one who is often on the front lines at the UN, I can tell you for sure that China leads efforts to block civil society from participating in the UN process. How do I know this? Our organization received UN consultative status this spring. Um, we owe a Huge debt of gratitude to Ambassador Nikki Haley and Ambassador Kelly Curry, our ambassador to ECOSOC. The way this is done is that China, Russia, and other beacons of democracy control, control <laughs> the NGO committee. That's the gatekeeper. Of civil society. If you're a human rights NGO addressing only human rights in the DPRK, they keep you on hold for 5, 10, 15 years. They send you the same questions every six months. Just change the wording a little bit. So, um, Ambassador Haley brought us to a vote. We got shut down, of course. Again, the same beacons of human rights and democracy voted (laughs) against us. Uh, So, we were brought to a vote at ECOSOC, all 54 members of ECOSOC. And, of course, despite Chinese opposition, and despite opposition by others, we managed to win. I would say by by a landslide. But it's very obvious that China, at the UN, is behind efforts to stifle real civil society, not totalitarian government-controlled organizations masquerading as civil society, as NGOs. So, having seen this on the front line, I'm I'm very very skeptical. But one never knows. Let's see.
2: Yeah, And arguably, just to add on, I mean, China should be one of the focal points of U.S. criticism of human rights abuses because they have consistently repatriated North Korean refugees back to North Korea. Um, if you haven't seen it already, the um, Office for International Religious Freedom just put out a very short, like four-minute clip on um, a North Korean refugee, Hyona Ji. Uh, who was repatriated by China three times back to North Korea. On one occasion, she was forced to abort her child um, without anesthesia, on a desk, not with any proper medical uh, proceedings. And she was forced to renounce her Christian faith um, and faced really severe punishment for mere possession of a Bible. Um, these are the types of stories that are are typical of North Korean refugees who are being repatriated by China on a daily basis. And so I think the U.S. should continue to be very critical and pressing on China for the human rights abuses that they aid in abet in when it comes to North Korea.
4: Maybe two quick thoughts. Um, You know, essentially, I mean, that's a great question we've got to bring in the regional actors. Um, Essentially, in my view from China's perspective, they're mainly interested in stability in the Korean Peninsula, right? Anything that disrupts that uh, is a no-win for them. Um, and as one of my bosses like to say, they're actually more interested in the dirt on North Korea rather than the regime itself. As long as they maintain that buffer, um, and as long as nothing there's no spillover effects over into China, they're, they're mostly happy. So that said, how do we get China interested in this issue? I would proffer a carrot and a stick. So the stick is, so if, um, you know, you're looking in your uh, future horoscope and you see that Kim Jong-un one day or th- uh, North Korea's leadership one day will be before some international criminal tribunal. Uh, under the Rome Statute, there is our domestic version of aiding and abetting uh, for crimes against humanities, as well as a number of other international crimes. China, now is the time you want to help facilitate this, facilitate better actions, um, or you may, too, be implicated in these future tribunals. The second, well, the carrot is China. You says, you China, you want to be a responsible stakeholder in the region. You can be one of the leaders on refugee rights <clears throat> we're not asking you to house these refugees we're not telling you to give them food and shelter um, just let them pass through your country into another country that's willing to accept them um, that's a great boon for you you can tout this as you know your shows of leadership and non-traditional security measures uh, and that could be a big plus for china
2: this will be the last question
5: Um this is of uh, Gavi Greenspan um intern on Capitol Hill with Congressman Chris Smith. Um just and this is directed to anyone at the panel, but um fairly recently, I believe, the Wall Street Journal reported that, um, I, I might get the wording wrong, but President Trump said something along the lines of he loved Kim Jong-un or fell in love with Kim Jong-un, something along those lines, where basically he was kind of becoming pro-Kim Jong-un. and Something you know really quite shocking and disturbing to anyone who takes North Korean human rights seriously and takes the North Korean threat seriously. And so I guess my question is, Uh, What does that mean for U.S. negotiations with North Korea and for the U.S. pushing the human rights concern in North Korea, having a president who, quite frankly, seems to be completely oblivious to the sheer evil of the North Korean regime?
1: First up. Uh, well, love is a complicated thing and, uh, <laughs> even, even president Moon, uh, President Moon, in the speech he gave uh, the the evening before his speech at uh, May the first at May Day Stadium, he said that uh, Chairman Kim and I crossed the the demarcation line hand in hand like two <laughs> affectionate lovers i 'm not kidding you, that was the wording used. Uh, That said, of course, uh, I would always focus uh, more on the things that President Trump does rather than the things that he says. Um, To give you an example, I mentioned our event on the 24th last week. Uh, Our keynote speaker, he gave both introductory and concluding remarks, was none other than uh, the Deputy Permanent Representative of the United States to the United Nations, Ambassador Cohen. Uh, under the current circumstances, when everyone regards uh, human rights as such a sensitive issue, I think that's a very good sign moving ahead. That's a very good sign that human rights continues to be on our radar screen, USA, and that's a good sign that we will continue to play a, uh, a hopefully positive role um,
4: at the UN and beyond.
2: Yeah, that's good. Well. Uh,
4: maybe just uh, two fingers. So, um, so one, I would, I would agree with you that maybe compared to other negotiations with North Korea, this is uh, really top-down. Um, usually, in these types of negotiations or any types of serious negotiations, um, bureaucrats will work for weeks, sometimes months, to hammer out the really uh, nitty-gritty details. And then finally, when the s- summit leaders meet, essentially, it's you know, sign on the bottom, maybe hash out some of the more difficult issues. Um, but in this case, it's all been topped, mostly been top down, um, which means two things. It means one, you know, the, kudos to President Trump for getting us this far because we've never been able to get this far because there's not been this type of senior executive talks. Um, but two, um, there's a real risk. What happens if negotiations fail, uh, and President Trump does have the full arsenal of the U.S. military might, you know, at his fingertips. Uh, so there's. Both an advantage to it and at least getting as far as we have, but there's also a risk involved um, if things don't go the way we'd like.
2: Great. Any final words from our panelists before we close out? All right. Well please join me in thanking the panelists. <laughs> And also, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. My colleague Angel would probably kill me. But um, if any of you would like to join our mailing list, there's a sign up out on um, the the desk out there. Um, so please feel free to add your email address and grab any papers that you're interested in. Thank you again for joining us. That was great.
4: I enjoyed it. Nice to meet you. To you. <laughs> I enjoyed your piece about the uh, and yeah. the character.